You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Okay, joining me on the Freedom Pact podcast today, I have Mark Priestley, former McLaren F1 mechanic, motivational speaker, author of The Mechanic, and the host of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. Mark, welcome to the Freedom Pact podcast, my friend. Thanks so much, Lewis. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. So, as we were talking about before we went on air, you do something that I really, really love, and it is these stories of people who have... Um, been in high performance situations from maybe a sport or the military or, or anything and they sort of translate those lessons uh, in a way that everyone can use in their everyday life and I really love the content you're putting out and I'm really fascinated at the moment by high performance and you know once you talk about high performance you think of you know, you instantly think of the world's most famous athletes, but high performance goes deeper than that. And for you, you were operating, you know, in the in the top one percent of, of people who do what you did. So what does high performance mean to you in the context of your career? Um, it's kind of everything. In terms of my career, high performance is, is everything. And, and to give people some context, as you, you touched on at the beginning there, almost almost all of my career has been in one form or another, either directly within Formula One. I spent 10 years working at the McLaren Formula One team. That began as a mechanic. So on the engineering side of what Formula One teams do. But over those 10 years, moving up into sort of managerial roles where I start leading teams and I start having an understanding of, although it's a very technical sport, Formula One, it's a lot of focus on the cars and the technology. It's one of the things I love most about it. There was an appreciation and an understanding that none of that happens without the people within that organization. And, and a Formula One team, many people won't even know this, can be up to a thousand people or more that are all working away behind the scenes to create, design and build these two amazing cars that then compete on a, on a Sunday afternoon in in the height of, of competition, but in a very public fashion under intense scrutiny and pressure. And every one of those thousand people needs to be high performance. They need to be elite level. So the upshot of all of that is that I spent all of my career and, and you know, beyond even working at McLaren, I moved into the, the broadcasting side of Formula One. So, for a 10-year period beyond that, worked for broadcasters, but always within Formula One, always in the F1 paddock. The upshot of all of that is that for 10, 20, beyond that even now, years, I have been surrounded every day by elite-level people. Mm. And that's both the athletes when it comes to the drivers, it's the, the pit stop crews in those teams, but it's also everybody in every single position in the teams, in the infrastructure, the support network around Formula One, they're all elite. They are the best of the best. And so high performance is has become the norm for me. And it means people operating at the very highest level. And of course, what I now come to understand is that's different for everybody. So it's people operating at the highest level possible with what skills they have, what tools they have around them, what resources you know, what you have available to you, if you can maximize it, your high performance. And if I say the words high performers to you uh, in the space of Formula One, people out there right now, they may be thinking of, you know, the, the superstars. They might be thinking you're going to say um, Kimi Reichen and Lewis Hamilton. But who comes to mind when you think of high performance on the scope we were talking about there, you know, from, from everywhere in, in uh, every sort of job within Formula One? Well, the truth is that everybody was high performance. And I think what you do in terms of, of, of that type of industry, where we're talking about, you know, Formula One is part of the motorsport industry. The motorsport industry is a very high performance industry. It's competitive. If you're going to be successful, you've got to be really high performance. Formula One is the top 1% of that industry. So 
that's why I say we're talking about elite level. So by the time you get to Formula One, whether you're a driver, whether you're a mechanic, whether you're an engineer or a designer, whatever, you have already excelled in your career to get yourself to that that really top level. Um, so those names you, re- you just reeled out there, I worked with Kimi Raikkonen, I worked with Fernando Alonso, Lewis Hamilton, three of the greatest drivers, well, the sport has ever seen, but certainly I was very fortunate to work with all three of those and they stand out to me. Um, but even beyond that, you know, I could pick out the people like Adrian Newey. Formula One fans will know Adrian Newey. He is chief designer currently at the Red Bull Formula One team, but I worked with him at McLaren. He's the most successful designer in the history of the sport because, you know, his record is is full of championship successes, working with the greatest drivers, designing some of the most iconic and best performing cars. He's still doing that in the same way that Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso are still performing because they have this little extra something that not only means they have an incredible skill set, incredible talent and ability, but they have a mindset that means they're continually pushing, even after, you know, 10, 20 years in the sport, they still want to be the best and they're still willing to go to extraordinary lengths to, to make sure that happens. I could pick out Ron Dennis, who was my CEO at McLaren. Again, somebody really kind of iconic within the sport who built the McLaren organization from a small race team into a global technology company that's leading the market in so many areas, even long, you know, way beyond Formula One, a visionary, but somebody who had in the most insane attention to detail. I take elements of all of those people and try and incorporate them in, in my daily life today. And I've certainly taken lessons from all of them that I now, in what I do today, you know, spend much of my life trying to to share and pass on to other people. And in your sort of uh, relationship with these really elite performers, like a, like a Ron Dennis, like a Lewis Hamilton, are there any traits that you notice across the board that are within, you know, all of the, 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 the sort of the top, top? Yeah, 100%. I think, um, as I said, it's no coincidence that, you know, when people ask me who are the greatest drivers that you've ever worked with, I will generally pick out Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso, um, not only because they were both insanely fast, great racecraft, all of the things that you need behind the wheel of the car, but way beyond that. And, it, and as I said, it's no coincidence that those two especially have had incredibly long careers and are still delivering unbelievable performances, you know, into and approaching their 40s. It's because they have a mindset that goes with that talent. And that mindset is one where you're never satisfied with what you've got. And you're always looking to find improvements. I mean, I can pick out many examples with Lewis Hamilton, for example, where even at the, in, in, a, in his sort of rookie years, in his early stage of his career, he was looking for advantages, looking for ways that he could create advantages, you know, not sitting there thinking, I've got this wonderful talent that will do me very well. He was taking that on board, but also trying to find things in the data, you know, things that other drivers weren't doing, staying late in the paddock at night, pouring through data with his engineers, speaking to mechanics and the engineering team about trying to understand how the car works. I mean, most drivers don't care how the car works. They want it to work a little bit like we have today with our iPhones. We don't really care how they work, but we definitely know if they don't work all of a sudden because it frustrates the hell out of us. That's the same with a racing driver. But Lewis was different. Lewis wanted to understand the technology behind it, how a steering wheel was connected to the the wheels on the road car, what even the electrical boxes, the magical black boxes that no one knows what they do. Lewis wanted to understand that kind of technology because he felt... If he understood it, it might give him a tiny advantage in knowing how to best exploit that technology to his advantage. And it's those tiny details which set the very, very good uh, aside from, you know, the elite. And we will be talking about the likes of Lewis Hamilton, especially long for for many, many years after he's retired in the sport because of his, his racing record. But I would look way beyond that racing record and point to many of those little details I've talked about. That's a tiny snapshot, but there's lots of that. And those are the reason that his racing record is so good. Wow. I love this insight, man. And on the topic of um, someone like Lewis Hamilton, it reminds me of this conversation I've had with many people about high performance. And it's a controversial topic of ego and the role it plays in high performance. I think 
when you look across the board, especially in sport, a lot of the you know a lot of the best in the world at what they do, they come with a certain level of ego, whether that's Cristiano Ronaldo, um, Tyson Fury, you know any sport pick you know pick the best from any sport. There are some egos in there, and it's quite a divisive issue on whether you need a level of ego to be able to see to succeed or the ego is just a byproduct of that success what what's your opinion on ego in sport well it's i think it's a it's a really interesting point and it's actually quite complex because it, it depends very much on how you define ego because there's a sort of a crossover between ego and self-belief and confidence and i think you have to have the self-belief that's a that's a sort of non-negotiable self-belief and confidence in yourself is something that you just have to have um, because it's having that that sort of enables you to push on to the next level. If you're constantly questioning your own ability, it just holds a little bit back from you in terms of the number of risks you're willing to take, for example, to exploit the next opportunity, whether that's in a racing car, whether it's, you know, in whatever, you know, element of life, quite frankly. Ego, I think, is a little bit more about how that confidence shows up how it shows uh, to other people. And, you know, I would go back to the example of Lewis Hamilton. Lewis has incredible self-belief. And even in his very first year as a Formula One driver, a time when, you know, you must be questioning, you know, this idea of sort of, um, of imposter syndrome. I mean, there can't be any greater example of that. You rock up in a world where you are amongst the world's best drivers. You know, you're up against the Michael Schumachers of this world. His teammate in that very first year was the current world champion. It was Fernando Alonso at us, at our team at McLaren. So this young rookie that people on the outside certainly had some question marks over because he had no Formula One experience. So how on earth has he landed a drive at one of the top teams in the sport at McLaren? That was a, a fairly unprecedented thing in itself. And not only that, he's being measured up against the current world champion. And yet within... I'd say three or four races of that season where he's sort of finding his feet, he's learning the ropes, he's doing all those things I described earlier, trying to find those opportunities, working incredibly hard. Within three or four races, his self-confidence began to go through the roof. He suddenly, whether he always had it, I don't know, but it began to show up in self-confidence that it was very clear he believed he was as good, and I'm pretty sure in his mind, better than Fernando Alonso a guy in the same car on the other side of the garage, the only guy that he's ever going to be really truly measured against because they're in the same car. And yet Lewis, I have no doubt believed that on many occasions he was better than the current world champion. Now, you'd have rarely ever found a journalist who wrote anything to that level to say that. You'd have rarely found anybody even within the team or anyone in Formula One or outside of it that would have ever said Lewis is better than Fernando Alonso back then. But Lewis believed it. And the fact that he believed it enabled him to continuously look for the opportunities to overcome what he decided was his biggest rival, the guy in the same car on the other side of the garage. What didn't happen with Lewis, though, it didn't show up as ego. He never allowed the ego to overtake or overrun that self-confidence. And that means that the people within the team and the people around him never really turned against him, never turned off him, whenever put off by an arrogance that ego can often you know manifest itself in so i think yes you have to have the self-confidence to go back to answering your original question there self-confidence is key self-belief absolutely 100 i don't think any real true sustained high performer can operate at that high level for a long period of time without it but ego again comes down to how you define it and i think if it shows up as arrogance can end up being a, a sort of negative effect in that you start to, or you potentially begin to lose support from those around you. And that can be a dangerous thing. Even in an individual sport or an individual pursuit, you still need to have people buying into you on your side because there will become a time, even if you're an individual long distance runner, somebody who runs on their own for long periods of time, you need a team of people around you. And if there's arrogance, those people won't be there in the moments when you need them most. So, the difference between how ego shows up, I think, is absolutely key to answering that question. Brilliant. And uh, the last thing on 
such an interesting character in, in Lewis Hamilton is for from what I can sort of remember of that journey it's almost like his his life really changed sort of overnight as you mentioned they bursts onto the scene and goes from a rookie to someone who transcends the sport quite quickly and enters celebrity culture now in many sports you see athletes who hit that sort of pinnacle of celebrity and it completely changed their personality completely changed their approach to their craft you, you know you you see uh, examples in fight sports particularly you know guys who become celebrity and then all of a sudden that 6am gym session isn't as isn't as appealing anymore mm-hmm. um in your experience with lewis there you mentioned he was quite um you know he was a student of the game right from the off when he was in his rookie season did you see much of a change in his approach or his personality when he started to transcend that sport I think very early on, and again, I go back to his very first year and those first few races, really, where his life, that was the most rapid change in his life, going from being an unknown racing driver, relatively speaking, to being one of the biggest names in sport. And you may, those Formula One fans listening may remember that Lewis's first year was also a really kind of controversial year, not necessarily because of Lewis, but there were a number of things going on in the sport directly linked to McLaren. There was a massive sort of uh, Spygate scandal, as it was called, uh, sort of industrial espionage thing going on. So all of those things have to have an effect on a, on a young kid who's in his very early 20s, as he was at that point. A couple of things happened from my perspective of, of witnessing this up close and personal. One, you have to start having a good circle of people around you to trust, to give you good advice. Because when the world is changing around you at such a rapid pace, you're in uncharted territory. You've got no idea what the right thing to do is when the world is watching on, scrutinizing every move. It's impossible for anybody to be prepared for that, you know, at such a rapid pace. So you need good people to who have got more experience to help you with that. And I think Lewis struggled in the beginning in that in that sense. He didn't get good advice. He made some poor decisions around Things like comments he made in the media, um, which at times upset people around the team. Now, I, I said earlier, ego never showed up and it didn't with with Lewis in terms of arrogance, as I said. But he was ill-advised and he made some poor decisions. Having said that, within a very short period of time, he managed to get that back under control. He got the right people around him and that was key getting good advice. And very quickly, he learned, as I said earlier, that getting the people around you on side and this is where that support network has to come in, is key. It's not just key to your success for his perspective in the car. It's key to building support. So the newspapers start writing nice things rather than horrible things. It may seem like a real, tan- uh, you know, real sort of strange tangent to run off on, but those things make a difference. You know, when the newspapers started writing nasty things about Lewis's relationship, for example, we start to see a difference in his, in his performance. And it was, you could correlate it on a graph if you overlaid, you know, the sort of things that were being written at the time, the, the sort of public perception of Lewis versus what was going on in the car, they were very closely linked to each other. So by saying the right things, by doing the right things, by behaving in the right way, by having that right advice, you gradually begin to, not just the public perception, but the perception of your immediate team, people like me, who gradually start to really get behind you, to buy into you, to support you, want you to do well. And it, it doesn't change anything I do on a daily basis in terms of my job, but it's just a perception. And those little tiny tweaks are, again, the difference between the elite performers and otherwise, because you know that even what other people think of you can start to have an impact on your own psyche, your own mindset, your mood, your feeling. And that, in turn, definitely has an, an impact on your performance. So... I think it, it was um, there were changes. There were inevitably changes. And and one thing I do, I would say, is I have massive sympathy for somebody like Lewis at 22 years old, being plucked from relative obscurity to being thrust into the front pages of newspapers mm-hmm. and having every single move scrutinised, which is still what happens to him today and in an even greater level. That's not easy. And nobody can sit at home and judge the things that somebody in that position does unless you've been in it, and not many of us have. That's a good point, a very good point. 
switching gears then um no pun intended but um <laughs> if i move to i want to talk about your story because what i love uh to hear about with people who reach the pinnacle of a sport for example is that there's really no sort of blueprint to get to where you want to go there's you know if you to become an f1 uh pit mechanic there's no real formula to follow there's no blueprint you do this 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 and you'll achieve it you sort of got to pave your own path and with the other stuff you've done in your career obviously your media work um uh, for many people listening right now they may be aware um quite surreal for me actually i enjoy the odd game of formula one on xbox um <laughs> and i feel like my pit my pit mechanic shouting at me right now shouting instructions uh, many people know that you're, you're the voice on that game um but for you how at what point did you know this is what you wanted to do is this an industry you sort of you know wanted to go down and you happened to fall into the the, the formula one industry or was that always the goal from the off well the answer is i knew from being i guess a late teenager um that 16 years old probably that this was the career that i wanted mm. and the moment that i decided that there was, you know, in my mind, there was no going back. That was a, a very clear-cut decision. And I'm aware that most people at 16 have no idea what they want to do. And we've got my own kids that are going through those things at the moment. They don't know what they want to do at 16. So I was unusual in that sense. But the reason that I decided or I knew that that's what I wanted to do was almost accidental in that I grew up living next door to Brands Hatch, which is a race circuit in the UK, which back in the, in the 80s used to host the British Grand Prix. So Formula One came to my sleepy little village. So that was where I got the exposure to it and almost certainly lit that fire in me. But it took a long time before I had an appreciation that that could be a career for me. I was always in love with it. I was fascinated with it. I was a fan. But there was a switching point when I was about 16 where I thought, and I was actually doing A-levels at that point in a subject that I wasn't really interested in because it felt like that's what I should do. I was doing graphic design, um, and business studies and but always had this little burning fire that it, it wasn't really what I wanted and then I had this you know light bulb moment that well somebody's got to work in this sport you know why couldn't it be me and then this this switch in my life changed where everything and I mean pretty much everything was then geared towards me getting into that so the, the reason I ended up in Formula One Having made that decision, you're right, it's not a clear-cut path. There is no – you don't go and take a course and and, and end up there. Um, and, I, and I would never be as sort of arrogant as to compare myself to the likes of Lewis Hamilton and co. But all those things I just described as Lewis having, which is a mindset to be the best and to make sure that nothing's done half-hearted, always looking for the opportunities, creating opportunities, I have that same mindset. You know, I'm aware that I have that. That's There's no arrogance in that at all. I know because I've been through it and I still hopefully have it today. Formula One, the years I've had in the sport has only magnified it because everyone had it there. So it's become a norm to be surrounded in for me. But I'm now aware that looking back, I had a bit of that back then at 16 years old. So the decision to go after that dream as it was, was one that, in my mind, there's no way I wasn't going to achieve. Um, and again, I, I don't want to come across in any way arrogant, but it was all about persistence. So I decided, you know, the best place to start was the very bottom lev level of the sort of motorsport ladder, because I had no other way in. I had no contacts, I had no family history in the sport or anything like that. So I got a job as a mechanic apprentice in a very low level racing team that built Caterham 7 sports cars. Um, pretty much as low as you can go outside of karting. And and from there, I used that as a, a stepping stone to work my way up this ladder. But every step of that ladder was trying to get closer to F1. It wasn't just trying to move up in motorsport and enjoying the ride. It was doing all of that, but with a very clear target in mind that Formula One was the end goal. So all of the while through that journey, I was writing to the F1 teams, getting hundreds of rejection letters back, but each one of them said, you know, you don't have enough experience. And I'd go back and say, well, don't have enough experience in what? And get them to specify what I needed. And then I'd go and get that. And I'd write back again. And, you know, I tell this story a lot, but I've got a stack of hundreds of rejection letters at home from every single Formula One team uh, that I keep to sort of remind myself, but also my kids now, 
that, you know, persistence is key because the very top letter on that stack is the one from McLaren that eventually said, come on then, <laughs> come and have an interview. Um, so the, the real key to me getting there was, was persistence, having a mindset that I wasn't going to be broken, I wasn't going to be defeated, um, and just never sort of letting go of the dream, essentially. That's a beautiful story, man. So, and and this is why I, this is why I find most compelling about this sport. Um, I think everyone would agree if it was just, you know, uh, twenty guys driving the same car, no pit stops, they just go round and round. It's a pretty boring sport to watch, right? But once you introduce all these different aspects, you know, like like the pit stop, like you know the the innovation that comes with you know building the car and the, the sort of anticipation of you know what improvements have been made that's the beautiful part of the sport for me and i think a lot of people will agree and i've heard you talk about uh the adrenaline rush of a pit stop um and you you you, you explain it in such a great way and i encourage anyone out there listening who enjoys this side of the sport to, to go and read the book but if you could explain to our listeners now the the sort of feeling that adrenaline rush of a pit stop and what makes that so beautiful to you yeah, it's it's the one thing that I miss above all else, having left the team and, and no longer being, you know, operating on a, on a weekly basis in the pit lane, um, because that adrenaline rush is just so addictive. And it's I can imagine that it's, you know, you get elite athletes that must feel the same when they retire. They miss the adrenaline rush. And I can only kind of, you know, equate it to that. I'll, I'll try and describe, you know, what, what the sensation is like, because you're standing or kneeling, crouching in a pit lane. And I used to do the wheel gun for many years of, of that time with a Formula One car that weighs probably 800, even more today, nearly uh, nearly a ton, careering towards you at 70 miles an hour, as it was back then, the pit lane speed limit. And it's going to stop, you know, a, a 10 centimetres from where you're kneeling. The rear wheel is coming in, often all locked up, frost and, and out of control because they stop and skid to a halt at the last minute. You're hoping it's going to stop 10 centimetres away from you where that wheel, which is really quite heavy, it's glowing hot. The, the temperature on the brakes is, is glowing hot. You're going to zip, you know, get the gun, the wheel gun in before the cars even come to a stop. Get the wheel nut off. And as the jack lifts the car up, a couple of your teammates are going to take that wheel away. That reveals this glowing brake duct, uh, brake disc rather, which is often catches fire. A little bit of rubber often falls off the brakes and off the tire and, and lands on the brake disc, catches fire. There's no time to worry about that. That's burning away in front of you. That heat that's emanating off the brakes is burning through your fireproof suit. You can feel it. It's it's uncomfortably hot. At that point, the new wheel gets put on by one of your colleagues and you then follow that in violently with this wheel gun that is spinning with such force. If you're not ready, it will break your arms. No exaggeration. That wheel nut then gets done up. And at what which point, as the car gets slammed on the floor in front of you, the engine picks up to its, its maximum RPM. Back in the day, that was 21,000 RPM. The noise is like nothing you've ever heard. It's rattling your bones to pieces, shaking you to bits. Forget the sound because you've got multiple earplugs in. It's rattling you to your core. And then at some point within all that, and bear in mind this is within two seconds, that whole process, yeah. the rear wheels get lit up. They smoke away in front of you and the car wheel spins away at maximum speed and it's all over. And imagine all of that happening with 300 million people watching what you're doing, hoping that they're desperate McLaren fans, they're hoping you're not going to mess up their guy's race, mm. you know, and you could be the difference between your driver winning or losing that race. And I've been in both of those situations where a wonderful pit stop has accelerated us from second place and put us in the lead and we've gone on to win. Equally, it's happened when a pit stop's gone wrong and you go from first and you fall down the order. And you know, these stories today are magnified through social media. You get direct feedback from the people watching with that weight of expe expectation. Back in the day, it used to be that, you know, the next morning in the newspapers or, or on the TV replays that night. It's the most insane feeling. And everything I've just described sounds terrifying, and it is. But equally, it is the best feeling in the world. The adrenaline rush 
is incredible because when that goes well and those two seconds are over, there is no feeling like it. Man, that was like poetry. You make, you know, you make me want to be a mechanic. <laughs> oh, I've got goosebumps um, talking about oh, it. <laughs> brilliant, man. Brilliant. Um, and like you said there about the pressure, this is something that's really interesting to me. And I think this was a really smart move when I think it was the very first episode of Drive to Survive. So you've got all these new you know, fans who never really followed the sport. And I think it's in the first episode they sort of focus in on a... Uh, I think it was Haas, pit stop, where the mechanic doesn't, uh, I, I think it was like the front left tyre or something, doesn't get, doesn't go on properly. And Haas are on for this brilliant result. I think it was Kevin Magnussen on for this, you know, historic result really for the team. And you just see the emotion of this uh, member of the pit crew and you just, you see what it means. You see the pressure that's on his shoulders um, you see the level of responsibility that he feels when he has to go and talk to the team principal. And I think that really highlights the sort of pressure that's on everyone involved in the sport. And so that's why I wanted to ask you about that pressure. Like you said, they one mistake, it could ruin a driver's race. But if it that race determines where the team ends in the championship, you know, two seconds can cost the team £10 million. Um, so... Yeah. With that pressure on your shoulders, do you have any tactics to try and combat the pressure in that in that environment? Yeah, and this is what I spend much of my life today doing. I travel the world speaking to big organisations, largely big companies, helping them with exactly that. Because whilst you know that we've described it in some detail in in a Formula One sense, it's a very public pressure in Formula One. Everybody, whether you're an individual dealing with, you know, as a parent, my goodness, as a parent, we even deal with all sorts of pressures, trying to bring our own kids up without destroying them or harming them, keeping them safe, keeping them on the right track. But as a, you know, we have financial pressures. There's so many things going on in the world that we're all dealing with pressure. As a company, of course, you're also trying to perform at essentially an elite level to whether it's to deliver profits or whatever it is. You're under pressure all of the time. So this is what I now do today. I run workshops. I, I speak to, to, to corporates uh, about this kind of thing. The things that I've learned through Formula One about pressure are a huge part of it can be dealt with or at least mitigated through preparation. And that's what Formula One teams are very, very good at. So you're far less likely to end up becoming stressed or feeling stressed as a result of pressure if you're well prepared. And that there's a key difference between, you know, pressure and stress. And a lot of people often mix the two up. They say, talk about it as if it's the same thing. I'm writing a second book right now and actually have just finished a chapter on, on exactly this, dealing with stress, coping with pressure. Um, pressure is something that personally I find really helpful. I find it really useful in my life. Uh, even writing the book, I found without a deadline, I struggled to get this book written. It was open-ended and I needed pressure. I had to actually send an email to the publisher to say, can you please give me a deadline to deliver this and I'll get it done? Um, because I, I use pressure in a, in a kind of positive sense. Um, the way that we, do, we, we deal with pressure in Formula One, and this hopefully will benefit a lot of people, is by trying to be as prepared as possible. And by that, I mean, if you take a pit stop, for example, we that pressure I've just described could be overwhelming. You could be buckled with fear and, and come under so much pressure that it takes away your ability to perform unless you're so well-versed in that thing that you're going to do. You're so confident in your ability to deliver what you've got to deliver, then the pressure only serves to amp up, you know, heighten your senses, heighten your abilities. If you're not prepared when that pressure ramps up, you're going to start feeling self-doubt. You're going to wonder, you question yourself, can I do it? Is this going to be too much for me? And the moment that creeps in, you're highly likely to fail or something's highly likely to go wrong or you're leaving it much more to chance. So in Formula One, the point of view, the perspective we take is the more we can prepare, and that means every aspect. So from a pit stop point of view, of course, it's running through thousands and thousands of practice pit stops. It's going through the motions to commit them to muscle memory so that you don't have to think about it. You just do it. You've done it so many times, it's it's second nature. That's the first thing. But secondly, one of the things that 
people worry about when pressure ramps up is what if something goes wrong? You know, what am I going to do if if the driver doesn't stop on the marks right in front of me? Or what if the, the wheel gun fails or the front jack fails? Uh, you know, what if the car comes in with a puncture and, you know, it's cocked over to one side and we can't get the wheel off? Those are all things that can happen and could easily mess you up because it's not going to be how you practiced unless you practice for all the most common failure modes that you can possibly think of going into any situation. Mm. So in Formula One practice, pit stop practices, we practice almost as much for failure as we do for the perfect pit stop, which a lot of people don't understand or cannot get their head around because what you're desperate to get is that perfect two second pit stop. You want it over and over again. So people think assuming or introducing failures into the practice is going to disrupt you know, that that drive for the perfect pit stop. But it doesn't. The key point about practicing for failures or thinking about failures, trying to understand what you might do if a failure occurs, coming up with solutions before the event. And this is something people can put into practice, by the way, is if you think about whatever big challenge you've got coming up, which might feel pressurized, what are the biggest risks? What could go wrong? What are the most likely things that could trip you up? If you're going into a big job interview, which people get terrified about, What's the question that you're going to feel really awkward to answer? What's the thing that's going to really, you know, put you on the back foot? Think of all of those potential outcomes and prepare an answer. You don't have to reel it off word for word, but have that prepared. In pit stop terms, we do all of those failed pit stop practices. We practice for a wheel gun failing. We practice with the car coming in with a puncture, car stopping long or stopping short. The reason we do it is... When you're under pressure, when something like that goes wrong in a high pressure moment, if you've got to make a decision, we as humans are pretty terrible at making big decisions under pressure. We don't make good ones. Typically, the brain doesn't work in the same way. Um, you know, we, we our judgments clouded and we're thinking about other things. We're thinking about the disaster unfolding. And therefore, we have no sort of clarity and mental capacity to make a, a clear, balanced decision. So if you make those decisions beforehand and practice them and commit those outcomes to muscle memory in the same way you commit the perfect pit stop to muscle memory, when the failure happens, you don't have to make a decision. That moment which would trip you up is having to make the decision. If the decision is already made and prepared for, the muscle memory kicks in, you jump straight to the prepared plan of attack and there's no decision to be made. And that would be the same in a job interview. You don't have to sit there umming and ahhing and desperately wondering about what the right answer is going to be to this awkward question because you prepared something. You know, in, in race strategy in a Grand Prix, we prepare multiple race strategies. There's no point just preparing the, the quickest way from lights out to the checkered flag because that assumes everything's going to play out the way you, you think it will or you hope it will. It won't. It might rain. Someone's going to crash in front of you. You might get a puncture. So prepare plans and strategies for all of those outcomes rather than have to think on your feet and make a decision under high pressure where, like I say, as humans, we typically do that badly. So those are some of the greatest lessons I've learned. And the very key line to sum up all of that is be as prepared for everything as you can possibly be in advance. It takes a little bit of time, a little bit of effort, but that's all it takes. And when the big moment comes, I promise you, you will not regret putting in that extra time such practical actionable advice and man i i really love digging into this stuff and and hearing you talk about pressures again i encourage everyone to go and listen to your podcast these are things you talk about quite often and there was one other um area of i guess you could call it personal development um that you speak on and i think it's quite you speak on it quite well and i just want to ask you about this before we move into some uh final listener questions and you put this on your Instagram um, a while back about, and I have it here, about leadership. You said, I've seen some great leaders in F1, but also some terrible ones. The best spend their time helping others in a team to grow and even become better than them. The worst spend their time trying to make sure that never happens. Is that the, 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 the difference between a, a leader and a manager? Uh, yeah, you could describe it as that. Um, you know, again, it does depend on your definitions of things like managers and leaders. But, you know, a leader for me is not a job title. It's not a position. It's a, a character trait. And, you know, a manager is a job title. So a manager is a position you you reach within a company 
where you're managing a group of people. So you are therefore, by definition, the leader of those people. But you don't have to have the title manager or leader in your job title or description to be a leader. And I think that's the big difference. You can be at any level in, a, in an organization, in a circle of friends, in any level of society. You can be a leader no matter what you do. And that comes back to that definition you just read out from that, that quote. Helping those around you to become better than you, for me, is the, the sort of ultimate definition of a leader. Because you're giving some of your experience, and most leaders have great experience in some area, experience that others don't have. But instead of keeping that experience to yourself, trying to protect your position, which is what the worst, and I won't even call them leaders because that's not a leadership trait. But if you're worried about other people taking your position, becoming stronger or better than you, you're not a great leader. Um, whereas if you absolutely encourage the people around you to grow and be better than you, to one day be ready to take over your position or to, to move to another company and excel and, and you know become a, a great leader themselves, those are the best and the greatest leaders. And I've worked for both. I've worked under people that have all of those traits. And it's very, very noticeable. Because when you're talking about elite level organizations like a Formula One outfit, those traits stand out massively. I think in a in a company or an organization that's perhaps not elite, that's you know striving to be better, as I hope most companies are, but maybe not in the top echelons of whatever industry they're in, I think there is more room to cover up some of these, let's call them inadequacies or or um, less than perfect um, traits within an organization. At elite level, the margins between great and you know outright brilliant are so small, but you're looking for them and they stand out. Whereas those tiny margins that separate those two characters at elite level sport or industry, further down the line, wouldn't necessarily you know jump between one band and the other, if you know what I mean. There's a much bigger window for people to grow within a certain band of being great or, or elite, if, you, if that makes sense. Um, so the upshot of that is that I have, I've been really tuned into it in Formula One. I've been really tuned into what makes somebody elite, what makes somebody great. And so leaders like Ron Dennis, for example, who, who was my CEO at McLaren for, for all of my time or most of my time there, was a wonderful leader in some senses. He was a visionary for the company, he led a team of people who I think most of us would have would have done almost anything for him. He was that kind of leader um, in that when he finally left the team, there was this outpouring of sadness and emotion that he was going because people had such respect for him. But he also wasn't perfect, like none of us are. And there were many aspects of his leadership role that he I don't think he did particularly well. Uh, communication and relationships between the different layers of the organization, I don't think he did particularly well. He led very well by example, and he was, you know, people connected with him through that. But I was there for 10 years. I probably spoke to Ron Dennis, I don't know, less than 10 times over 10 years. You know, that's the CEO, that's my leader. However, I came away from that 10 year period with the utmost respect. So he wasn't perfect, but he was bloody brilliant in, in many of the things that he did. Um, and, th and that's the key here. Nobody is perfect. None of us are perfect. Lewis Hamilton, as the statistically the greatest racing driver that Formula One has ever seen, is far from perfect. You know, Max Verstappen today, who's winning everything, far from perfect. Incredibly good at lots of things. Incredibly good at more things than most people in the sport, but still not great at everything. And the best thing about that is, and this is how Lewis, I have no doubt, would look at it, there's still room for him to get better. You know, he hasn't maxed out. He's not perfect at everything, which means there's still areas that he will spend a lot of his time, and I know he does this, striving to become better in those spaces, which will make him a better racing driver, but also a better, a better man, a better human, a better leader in all of the other things that he does around the sport. So leadership is, a, I think, a, should be inspirational at, the, at its heart. And it's about sharing what knowledge and expertise you have to build the people up around you in your team to eventually become better than you. So just quickly before I get to these uh, fan questions, if you had to say one leader you've worked with or under, it doesn't have to be under, but someone you've seen 
who's demonstrated the most effective level of leadership? Um, well, I would actually say, I'd say Ron Dennis for all those reasons I, I talked about, but more on a, as I said, leading by example. And that's where any good leadership starts, by the way. You have to start by leading by example. It's no good a leader. And I go into many companies today looking to where they're looking to get better, where they want to turn around and, and tell the rest of the company how they should be behaving, how they should be operating, not necessarily doing it themselves. Everybody responds better to a leader who behaves in the in exactly the way they want you to behave. And that was Ron Dennis. His attention to detail was second to none. He would go to insane lengths to get something right. And therefore, because of doing that, we all knew what he expected. That's, ex that's what the company was built on. And all of us who worked under Ron Dennis, particularly for a long period of time, came away with similar levels of attention to detail. And whilst it drives my wife crazy that I'm forever sort of adjusting the cans of beans in the cupboard to face the right way and making sure the bin line is not sticking out from the edge of the bin. Um, it, all, <laughs> it also, um, loading the dishwasher, actually, that's another one. I, I'm always unpacking the dishwasher to reload it again in a more efficient manner. But anyway, that's another story. But this all comes from the attention to detail and the insane focus that Ron Dennis had himself in everything he did that I took away and was so inspired by that I could see advantages from, I could see where that might lead to us improving that in everything I do today, I try and incorporate that. And I'm, I've no doubt it helps me in everything I do. So Ron Dennis, hundred percent, but I'd also say Lewis Hamilton. I think Lewis Hamilton, Lewis doesn't have the word leader in his job title. He's there to drive the car. He's, you know, he's a, we build the car, we design it, we operate it. There's a huge team of people at any team. And then we hand it over to this guy who sits behind the wheel and does his thing. It's very easy to lose connection of, between what he's doing and what we're doing. Like we could be the team and there's the driver. But actually Lewis is a leader because he's so inspirational through all those things I talked about, through constantly looking for ways to improve. If I see my driver staying late at the racetrack, searching through the data, coming to talk to me about how we might be able to improve something on the car, even if it's midnight, that's massively inspiring to me. And as a leader, as I said earlier, inspiration is what we should be handing out to everybody around us. So Lewis and Ron, for their inspirational leadership, amazing. But, you know, there have also been many others, countless numbers of people that I can't name, you know, because you'd never know of them, but that have done wonderful leadership things on an everyday basis because we're encouraged within the world of Formula One where we're looking to maximise everything to be a team of leaders. If we're not a team of leaders, there's a little element that we're not maximizing. And, and with an elite sport, if you're not maximizing everything, then you're leaving something on the table where your opposition could be maximizing everything and, and there's an advantage for them. We need that advantage. So if the best way to operate is have a team of great leaders across the board, that's what we're gonna do. Brilliant. So just to wrap up, if we could fire through, I've got three questions that um, sort of came up more than any other when I first mentioned um, when we originally tried to schedule um, that you were coming on the show. Uh, the first one, um, just mentioned in there, Lewis Hamilton. A lot of people, uh, there's a lot of, there's always speculation around Lewis Hamilton on on whether he ha has it in him to continue, um, whether you know he's at the point he doesn't need to be a Formula One driver. He, you know, he can. There's plenty of other opportunities presenting themselves to him. In a time in which he is not in the team that is dominating the sport, he's not in the best car. He's not projected to be in in the in the best car next year. Do you think that he has a new level of hunger and will want to push on, or could you see him walking away from the sport? Well, we now know that Lewis has just signed a two, another two-year contract. So we know he's going to be in the sport for another two seasons, which personally I think is great. The reason he's signed that contract, it's not for the money. Like you said, he doesn't need the money. He's A, got enough of it, and he's got so many other business interests and, and relationships that bring in so much money. He could he could be satisfied along with generations to come forever. So he doesn't need money. Uh, we can be very clear it's not money-orientated. So what is it? And I firmly believe, and knowing what I know about Lewis, having worked with him, this is about not leaving at a point where he's been defeated. 
He is a person who hates losing, but even more than that, the comeback is the best part of getting to the point of winning again. And I, I genuinely believe that being beaten by Max Verstappen, being knocked off the, the sort of top of the perch, and don't forget, you know, non-Formula One fans, Lewis Hamilton had a run of, you know, or Mercedes, his team, a run of seven or eight years where they utterly dominated the sport and won everything. And then Max Verstappen and Red Bull came along and are kind of doing that back to them. They're now dominating and winning everything. Now, that doesn't just hurt because you've got so used to winning. It hurts for someone like Lewis because he's so driven. And this is partly about getting the eighth world title. He's got seven. Uh, ties that record with Michael Schumacher. He wants an eighth. And I know that these records do mean something as part of his legacy. He has an incredible legacy, which will live on forever anyway. But that final world title will mean something to him. He wants it. But even more than that, it's about turning a disappointing situation into a successful one. Mercedes, over the last couple of years, have had a really disappointing car to the point where, at times, Lewis has been struggling to even score a point. And that's unusual territory for Lewis in any point in his career. He will want more than anything to turn that disappointment into a success. And when I talk about leadership with Lewis, Lewis has been instrumental. Anybody at Mercedes will tell you this at driving this fight back and they are on a fight back and the car is now getting to a point where it's beginning to be competitive. We finished second again at the weekend. We've got another, a new set of cars, which of course will come out next year. There is every opportunity or every chance that Mercedes car next year with all the learnings they've had from the disappointments will be on par or at least very close to worthy of challenging Max Verstappen and Red Bull. And if that happens, there'll be no greater celebration for Lewis Hamilton than, than overcoming that adversity. When Lewis won his first world championship, which is with us in, in McLaren in 2008, it came off the back. And ben, anyone who, again, doesn't know, he won that championship, by the way, in the most dramatic fashion on the final day of the season in Brazil, where he won it in the final corner of the last lap of the last race of the season. And he won the title by one point. But what a lot of people won't know, 12 months earlier, at the same racetrack, the last race in Brazil, where he went into that race leading the title, could have come away with it, should have come away with it. For a number of failures, he lost the title at the very end of that very last uh, race of the season by one point. That hurt so much, not just him, but me and all of my, my colleagues at the team. And we took that disappointment and all of the learnings from those failures and worked so hard over the course of that winter and through the following year, it's no coincidence that we, in my mind, that we won 12 months later. Without the failure, I don't believe we'd have won that championship in 2008. So we had to go through that real disappointment to get to the point where we were so driven, so focused, that we won the, the holy grail of, of Formula One, the world title. Lewis is in that point right now. He's in that phase where it hurt so much 2021 was a particularly disappointing end to a season for him uh, in a similar way to 2007 was. And so he's now in that journey, that fight back. And I can tell you from my experience of that, the fight back is almost the best bit. And when you top it off with that cherry on the cake of finally winning off the back of the disappointment, it'll be the greatest championship I believe that he'll feel he's ever won. Man, I got goosebumps. I'm fired up, man. This sounds... Uh... <laughs> This this would be the the ultimate sort of end into the Lewis Hamilton movie. I I agree yeah. that would be such yeah. such a sweet moment. Um, brilliant. And, and I believe and, it will happen. By the way, I, wow, I genuinely really? believe it will happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would love to see it. I got to be honest. I'd love to see it. Um, another name that came at me, and I found this quite interesting. Um, a lot of people speculating around the career of Daniel Ricciardo at the moment. Um, someone who at one point people were saying, you know, he. He was finished. Is is he'd been on a, a decline since he left Red Bull? That he was sort of just the the drive to survive poster boy, but now we're seeing this this little bit of resurgence and a, a a great performance on the on the weekend just gone. And now people are talking. Could you know? Could he make a comeback to Red Bull? He seems to have sort of re not rebuilt his career, but sort of managed to refocus and put himself back on track amongst a lot of speculation and a lot of, of doubt. What sort of character does it take? Because you see a lot of guys who were had a lot of potential, who were once successful in this sport. 
once they start facing a bit of adversity, it's quite easy to just fall away from the sport and we never see them again. What sort of mindset does that take for someone like Daniel Ricciardo's journey? Yeah, it's it's actually almost exactly the same story that I've just described about Lewis Hamilton, even, you know, just at a different level within the sports. But the mindset and the character of the very best, and we're talking, as I said, we're in an elite level in Formula One, and then we're talking about the top percentage of drivers within that. There are a lot of drivers that come through Formula One and they are the best in the business, but you can then separate another group from the top of that. And it is the Lewis Hamiltons. It's the Fernando Alonso's, isn't it? It's the Max Verstappen's now, uh, Kimi Raikkonen. You know, if you go on a long list, world champions, Michael Schumacher, and so on and so on. The reason that those guys are where they are is because of their character and their mindset. The reason they stay in the sport for so long is because of that. They don't all have, they don't win every single year they're in the sport. Michael Schumacher didn't win every single championship he took part in, nor is Lewis Hamilton now. And the character trait that that really stands out for me is that that resilience, that one, the determination to even though you've been knocked back, use that to become even more powerful in the future. And Daniel Ricciardo is a great example of this. I think even Daniel Ricciardo would tell you he's made a couple of questionable decisions when it comes to his career choices about where he might go. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, Daniel Ricciardo was Max Verstappen's teammate at Red Bull. And actually, the only driver pairing, the only teammate of of Max Verstappen's who really gave him a genuine run for his money. Since then, Daniel Ricciardo decided that he didn't want to be Max's teammate. He didn't want to share the limelight. He wanted to go off on his own path, create his own story. You can't knock him for that. He had this drive to go off and, and do his own thing, a little bit like Lewis Hamilton did when he left McLaren, a very successful team. Of course, Lewis's story turned out different, um, but the decision-making process was probably a similar one. So Daniel went off on this tangent. He went off to Renault. He went via McLaren. And they were all very disappointing elements of his story. He will be, if he never gets it, one of the greatest Formula One drivers to never win a world championship, in my opinion, if he never gets that far. But the story's not over yet. And that's what's so great about somebody like Daniel. He hasn't given up and walking away walked away. He didn't uh, you know, give up when he lost his seat from McLaren and was left without a drive last year. He thought about how's the, what's the best way to get back in? And it was to take a, a reserve driver role. And then that led on to this opportunity at AlphaTauri, which is Red Bull's second team. This isn't all happening by accident. This is because that preparation that I talked about earlier is standing him in such good stead that when he took the opportunity as a third driver, reserve driver at Alpha Tauri, part of the Red Bull family, there will have been half an eye on getting back to the main team. That is now getting closer and closer because he's now performing very well at Red Bull's second team. And the driver that is now Max Verstappen's teammate, Sergio Perez, is really struggling for performance and, and results. And that will only last so long before the team need to make a change. So who's the guy who's really performing, who's in the Red Bull family, who they've tested up against Max Verstappen before, they know his credentials, it's Daniel Ricciardo. You know, this story is going to be an incredible one if he ends up taking that seat. And it feels like a highly likely outcome here. He's going to end up back in the car with team, you know, the same pairing of driver, uh, driver pairing uh, as, as Red Bull's most successful driver pairing in recent history. They're going to be back together again and Daniel will have an opportunity at potentially winning races, even a championship again. It's a brilliant story, but it's only come about through resilience, determination, that never being willing to to give up. Everything I talked about from, and this is what Formula One's built on, is people who are never willing to give up. And uh, even my story of getting to Formula One, it's full of people who got there because they didn't trip over and, and end up landing in Formula One no matter what job you ended up going for or getting in Formula One, you did it through persistence, through determination, and it's no different with a driver. So we're talking about an industry here that is filled from top to bottom of people with that mindset. And you know that's why for me now, having spent all this, this time, most of my working life in that, surrounded by those people, it's amazing and it's a privilege to have all of that rub off on me every day, everywhere I look are people like that, are people like Daniel Ricciardo, like Adrian Newey, Ron Dennis, Lewis Hamilton. Those are the people that I have grown up with in my adult life. So 
that's why I have this amazing privileged position that I'm now able to go and share with companies and share with people because most people won't get that opportunity. Most people won't have that privilege. And it now feels like almost my mission in life and my duty to pass on those experiences and that's you know that that sort of mindset that I have developed and grown through being surrounded by those people to others who who may not ever get that opportunity. Oh man. I love how this has come full circle, you know, these stories exactly what you were talking about at the start. Um the final question I have and I promise I'll let you go. I'm I'm sorry I'm peppering you with questions here. I feel like I could talk to you all day. All right. Um the last one before we let these guys know where they can uh, find the book your podcast. This is the question that came up the most, so I feel like I have to ask it. And you've probably been asked it a million times, but um, as we've talked about this beautiful sport with all these stories, all these great characters, all these great lessons, um, a lot of people now, their introduction to the sport is um, Netflix's sort of smash hit of a show, Drive to Survive. It's very controversial. I know a lot of diehard F1 fans who are friends of mine who think it's the worst thing in the world. I know a lot of people that think it's a positive thing for the sport. Um, as someone who's been in that world, who knows what it's like, who's you know who's, who's lived these stories, what do you think about the show? Is it reflective of the actual experience and what goes on? And ultimately, is it good for the sport? Well, let's break it down. The show is an entertainment show with a very clear directive, which is to draw new fans into the sport. And for that, it's been incredibly successful. I mean, I travel the world today and the amount of people that tell me they've got interested in Formula One because of Drive to Survive is incredible. And we know this. We've got there's data on it. There's figures. It works. So that's the first thing. But all that does it's like having a great shop window. You got to, you know, want someone to to entice people in. But when they come in the front door of your shop, you better have something decent behind the window to to yeah. back it up. Um, so that's what Formula One has to make sure they always maintain. These people are going to see Drive to Survive. The next thing they're going to do is they're going to click the TV on on a Sunday to watch a race. We better deliver something spectacular and special so those people stay. And that's the challenge Formula One has. So Drive to Survive. I think has been an amazing marketing tool and that's what it is uh, for new fans and, and people who don't necessarily are not watching every week as things stand for those inside the sport. And so to just to quickly to answer that very direct question, it's not a direct representation of what happens inside that paddock. It's hammed up. It's a little bit more Hollywood than it, than, than it needs to be. Um, you know, you get the special effects, the sound effects, you get the, the dramas being created um, you get the snippets. The edit is very, you know, deliberately done, all for very good reason. And it works, as I said. But when you're inside that sport and you're in the paddock and I do this, I go to races a lot still. I'm catching up with all of my old friends. I'll be stood in the paddock having a conversation with somebody. And before you know it, this giant boom pole appears over the top of your head with a massive furry mic on the end. And you realize it's being recorded. Private conversations that used to happen all across the paddock with friends about all sorts of things now don't happen or they have to be closely guarded or carefully thought about because you don't know who's listening. And and that's become a problem because now what happens is nobody is, is willing to be open and honest in the way that we all used to be amongst friends. Yeah. So you don't share information in the same way. I'm sure the journalists must hate it because they use that as a tool for getting information out of people. And if people are not sharing in the same way because they don't know if someone's listening, that, that affects them. So that's an impact. That's a, a, an impact, firstly. Um, but the secondly, to come back to what I was saying before, we've got to make sure that the sport itself and at the heart of all of this entertainment and spectacle is a sport, and it has to be that. It's got to stay a proper, good, entertaining, brilliant, competitive, fair sport. And there's a real fine balance. And this is something that Formula One, under its latest leadership, is figuring out Where's the line between entertainment and and the true diehard sport of competition that it that it has to be? And it is a difficult line. I'm not saying there's any easy way to, to figure this out because people complain when one team or driver dominates a sport, having created a better car than anyone else. Max Verstappen's doing it right now. Lewis Hamilton did it before that. Michael Schumacher in the years before that. People hate that because why would you switch the television on if you're pretty sure you know the result? Yeah. Who's going to win? However, I mean, I look at it differently from being in the sport and I celebrate what Max Verstappen and Red Bull have done because as an engineer 
having come from one of those teams, your remit is to go and create a car that's better than everyone else's. They've done exactly that. And yet now everyone hates them because they're dominating. So the sport then tries to tweak rules and change things and come up with elements that might keep it more interesting, like a sprint race. You know, we talk about reverse grids. There's all sorts of things that we can throw into the mix, like a hand grenade, to try and spice things up. And that will always upset the diehard fans. So what they have to do, and this is what they're pretty much doing at the moment, is test the water, take the data, understand what it means to people, how it affects people's viewing habits, how it affects your sponsors and how much they want to, to invest in the sport, the partners to teams. All of these things are, are worthy factors to consider. And then they've got to figure out where the sweet spot is. And it will always have to be moved, you know, a little bit at a time by tweaking things. But that's the game of Formula One is keeping it in the sweet spot that keeps fans happy, that keeps investors and sponsors happy, viewers on the television, as well as drivers and teams. It's an, it's an impossible situation for the people running the sport, but that is what they're having to try and do. And, and there's no easy answer to it. So Drive to Survive, massive success on one hand, but let's not make sure that that doesn't become the sport. Oh man, this has been such an enjoyable uh, podcast. One of, uh, well, the best one I've done in a long time. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you. Please let these guys know where they can find everything we've talked about today. I know they can find you uh, on Instagram at, at F1Elvis. Please let them know the best place to find the book, the podcast, and yeah. all your other work. Yeah, well, thank you, Lewis. That's very kind of you. I've really enjoyed the conversation too, so thank you for having me. Um, yeah, you can find me at F1Elvis is for my social handles across all the channels. However, I have actually just started a second Instagram channel for all this kind of stuff, Brilliant. for all of the sort of personal development stuff and all the corporate stuff that I talk about. So that is Mark, which is M-A-R-C underscore Priestley, which is P-R-I-E-S-T-L-E-Y. So Mark underscore Priestley is my second Instagram channel. So do go and give that a, a shout. Let me know. Hit me up with a DM and I'll say hello. Um, yeah, the podcast is called Pit Lane Life Lessons. Um, just in between seasons right now, but planning the next series, uh, that's across all the, plot, the podcast platforms. And, and that, again, is something, if you've enjoyed this conversation, it's exactly these kind of topics. My lessons from Formula One and passing those on to you. Um, the book is called The Mechanic, and you can get that everywhere. And uh, and if you enjoy it, there is a second book on the way, as I said. I'm a long way from finishing it, but it's well underway. And, uh, and I'll give you a big shout and let you know when it's coming your way. Well, can't wait for that. Hopefully get to speak to you again when that comes out. Um, until then, I'll leave all the links to everything you've mentioned in the description below for everyone who's listening or watching. You can go and hit those links now and check it out. Mark, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, my friend. Uh, it's been an honor. Thanks, Lewis.